Welcome back to Talk Read to Me, a podcast about materials and sustainability. This is a follow-up to our episode on controlled environment agriculture. Today, we're speaking with Travis Parman, the Chief Communications Officer of App Harvest, a sustainable food company that is utilizing advanced technology to build a climate-resilient food system in the heart of Appalachia. Travis, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in sustainability? Yeah, absolutely. So most of my background was automotive. Uh, And then uh, at the height of COVID, like everyone else, it seems, I thought I really would like to do something with uh, a mission, with a little more purpose. I had a colleague that I had worked with in automotive who um, left automotive to go work on what she referred to as artificial meat which was the grossest thing I think I ever had heard like around 2015, 16, something along those lines. And uh, that turned into impossible foods. And so I thought uh, the, the the magic that she did there, I'd, I'd like a little piece of that sustainability magic too and got super interested in the subject. That's awesome. It sounds really weird, but it's all the craze now. We did mm-hmm. an episode about alternative proteins, and there's so much going on in that space. Very yeah, very it's cool. absolutely fascinating. Can you tell us more about um, your jump from automotive to the space? Yeah. So um, I uh, had been. I have always done communications, and so my undergrad was in uh, communications at University of Tennessee. Uh, And then later, after I had started my career, I got a graduate degree in communications management at Syracuse University. So I've always enjoyed the challenge of trying to take a technical subject and make it interesting and making it easy to understand. So naturally, there's a lot of that when you get into sustainability issues, which can be quite complex. And with that Parvest, at Parvest was a new company in a new sector uh, that no one really fully understood uh, or understood what the point was, what are the benefits, what's the what are the possibilities here, uh, and so that was a unique challenge to come in from the ground up when the company was first getting started and really help it put its story together in a way that people could easily understand and that would resonate with people. That's awesome. So, what is the uh, thing that App Harvest does? App Harvest is a sustainable food company. We build and operate giant indoor farms uh, with the latest technology. So farming more sustainably in a controlled environment agriculture, um, it means de-risking the whole uh, concept around farming um, by controlling the environment so that you have a reliable climate in which you can grow, which is increasingly difficult um, with changing weather patterns. So for open field farming, uh, it's getting really difficult for farmers to be able to know when their growing season will begin, when it will end, whether it will be interrupted by drought, by flooding, by significant wind events. So controlled environment agriculture gives you an opportunity to do that in a more consistent way all around the year. What does that entail? So 
with a controlled environment, we leverage a closed loop irrigation system. And so we use rainwater and sunshine is what we start with. So because of that closed loop irrigation system, we're able to use about 90% less water than open field agriculture. And we're taking um, Appalachian sunshine uh, and Appalachian rainfall uh, and funneling that into the system. And we also are able to use a fraction of the nutrients that you normally would use because you're able to do precision dosing of exactly what you need. Uh, and those components stay in the irrigation system and circulate uh, essentially until they're used. Great. Um, so when did the company start and when did this field start developing? So around 2017 or so, our CEO and founder, Jonathan Webb, started floating the idea around and, and looking to get support for it. He came from a background of developing large renewable energy projects uh, for the Department of Defense. Uh, but in the additional research he did, he found that food security was an even bigger issue than energy security, and there weren't many people addressing it. And he, for a long time, had wanted to be able to bring an idea back home. He grew up in Kentucky uh, that could help create jobs here. Uh, and he discovered that the Dutch had a technology that was basically high-tech greenhouses that they had been developing since just after World War II. Uh, that was fairly advanced in Europe, but that the U.S. had not really adopted. And so uh, he, he took this idea uh, and then wound up getting venture capital funding for it uh, until eventually we went public on NASDAQ a couple of years ago. And so that was that was the genesis of App Harvest. That's awesome. That's a really fast turnaround. That's really amazing. Yeah, it really, it really was. And then we started building. When we built our flagship farm uh, in Moorhead, Kentucky, uh, that's the size of more than 50 football fields. Uh, and so it's 60 acres under glass. We can grow nearly 750,000 tomato plants uh, at any given time. And so we spent uh, last year quadrupling our farm network. So we went from one farm to four farms. That's really incredible. Yeah, like Mr. said, that's a very quick turnaround time. What are some of the other plants that you are also growing beyond just tomatoes? So we started with tomatoes in Moorhead because that's the number one import that comes out of Mexico into the U.S. And so we thought that's a great opportunity to put a dent in that market. The U.S. currently relies on about two-thirds of its fruits and vegetables being imported, which is not great from a food security. When you start looking at your supply chain and your supply lines, you need a little more resilience than that to ensure uh, good domestic food security. So we started with tomatoes. We expanded after that into uh, a salad greens facility. So we've got a 15-acre salad greens farm that is in Berea, Kentucky, that can um, grow about 35 million lettuce plants at a time. And those plants renew every three to four weeks. 
we did basically a copy paste of our Moorhead farm and we have a Richmond farm that does more tomatoes, another 60 acre farm. Uh, but we're doing many more varietals than what we started with. So we're doing everything from beef steaks to Campari to uh, many different types of snacking tomatoes. Uh, and then in Somerset, Kentucky, we have a strawberry farm that is 30 acres and we uh, can do about a million strawberry plants a season there. And then we alternate that seasonally with cucumbers. And so that's where we are right now. Controlled environment agriculture tends to be really good for vine crops. And so that's what you're gonna see us continue. We expect to continue to expand in the area of vine crops. So how do seasons work with this type of farming? With controlled environment agriculture, you work to create an environment that is optimal for plant health and productivity year round. So basically you go into one of the farms and it, it either feels like a spring or a summer day um, pretty much all year round. So depending on which farm it is, our salad greens farm uh, can be pretty consistent um, 365 days a year. We do what we call a summer refresh with our tomato farms um, because these plants can get to be 30, 35 feet tall with 20, 25 productive trusses on them and be productive for about 10 months or so out of the year. But we take them out in the middle of summer um, when open field agriculture comes online. And that's when we take our opportunity to do a refresh there uh, at the height of summer. And then we plant and start harvesting again in the fall. Then the reason that we alternate on our strawberries and cucumbers is strawberries also tend to like it a little bit on the cooler side. Uh, and the cucumbers love it when it's hot and humid. Uh, and so we have a little bit of variation there um, because we try to be as sustainable as possible and leverage as much sunshine as we can and uh, natural temperatures as we can so that we're not expending um, any more energy than is necessary. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, what is different about controlled environment agriculture to vertical farming? Love that question because most people think it's the same thing. So the way we describe it, vertical farming tends to be all artificial inputs. It's usually municipal water and artificial lighting, and they call it vertical because it's stacked. So that makes great use of space, but that means that you have to put lighting in between each of the levels. So we grow somewhat upward because our plants can get so tall in some cases. We don't stack our plants um, because we rely on, we have, we actually do have a glass roof that's made of diffused glass, which helps to scatter the sunlight so that each plant gets its fair share. And so that's really the difference between what we're doing uh, and most vertical farms. I think there are some vertical farms that leverage rainwater as well. Um, but we are at scale leveraging as much sunshine and 100% uh, rainwater. Based on my understanding, this is done without any soil. Could you explain the reasoning behind that? 
Yeah, you bet. It's hydroponic. And so it's just not needed. You need a medium so that you can feed the water and the nutrients through a dripper system. And that's one of the things that makes it so efficient uh, is uh, you, you don't need that the middleman of soil and uh, you're able to feed the roots and the plant exactly what it needs. How do you determine exactly what a plant needs to get to its optimum size or nutritional value? We have master growers um, who have done this for years, in some cases, multiple decades, uh, who um, really understand exactly what the plant needs and can help replicate it. Where we're really being advantaged is um, we're, we're really a big data enterprise. So we can automate the facilities. So our tech team likes to call our Moorhead flagship farm a 60-acre robot because it's automated to be able to program in, I want to maintain this temperature, I want to maintain this lighting schedule, I want to maintain this level of humidity, and then we can analyze that data. We've got about 300 microclimate sensors throughout a farm the size of Moorhead. Uh, and so you start looking at the data to say, okay, what were the environmental conditions that we had and which areas of the farm were the most productive, which ones, you know, uh, were, were maybe a little less productive or had some issues that we don't like to see. Uh, and what do we think was causing that uh, to really arrive at uh, an, an optimal outcome going forward? And so that's something that we expect uh, to get increasingly good at over time. And that's really what a lot of people consider the holy grail in agriculture is being able to forecast what is my quantity and what is my quality going to be uh, because everything cascades after that on arranging for your transportation and understanding you know, which customers need which products and what volume and quality can they expect to get those in. Nice. It really sounds like it's a big, well-thought-out designed experiment to just be as efficient as possible. I, I really like that. Yeah, yeah. it's trying to and, introduce the, you know, the, the, the robustness that you have with consumer packaged good manufacturing into this natural environment where you're starting with nature and boosting it with technology where needed to come out with a reliable, consistent product. Yeah, you mentioned the quality of these products. So how do these the app harvest fruits and vegetables compare to what is typically at a grocery store? Do they have any notable differences in taste or anything? We get really good reviews. Uh, and I think a lot of that is because today when you go to a grocery store, a lot of the fruits and vegetables that you get have been bred uh, knowing that they're going to be transported for many days, potentially up to several weeks and thousands of miles. And so they are bred for robustness for transportation, where in some cases we can pick it, pack it, ship it, and have it on grocery store shelves within 24 hours. So you can pick it when it's riper. That helps ensure uh, greater levels of nutrition as well. Uh, and then it helps with the flavor also. You know, the um, CDC uh, studies suggest that only one in 10 U.S. citizens eats as many vegetables as they should per day. And I think in some cases, that's because we don't have the quality year round. And so people don't like it because they don't taste as good as they should. 
Uh, and so in this case, there can be an advantage reducing those food miles. <laughs> I know that uh, I, I don't like eating fruit because I'm always disappointed with the flavor. So if I, yeah. knew, <laughs> if I knew it was great all along, I would I would eat healthier. So <laughs> that is one of the advantages of us being in central Appalachia, too, is because, you, you know, coal was successful here, not just because they had the deposits. It was because they could reach 70% of the U.S. population within a day's drive, which is a significant advantage when you have a perishable good. So uh, you're going to find our products right now, based on the volumes that we have, typically around the Great Lakes states, uh, here in uh, around the south, um, and we tend to be on the on the eastern seaboard. How can we tell, like, if a consumer goes to the grocery store, how will we be able to tell that we're having app harvest? fruits or vegetables? So we've got, you can look for our little Double Mountains logo um, because in the case of our tomatoes, um, most of the time we are co-branded with our distributor, Master Nardi, and their Sunset brand. So you will see uh, the Sunset logo and the App Harvest Double Mountain logo. Uh, in some cases, it's a little bit more difficult because we also packed for some um, uh, grocery store private label. So you would have to flip your carton upside down and you'll see generally something that has AP uh, and a code um, beyond that uh, that lets you know that the source is at harvest. Okay, that's good. Yeah, we'll definitely have maybe a couple of pictures of those on our website or something so that people know where to find you. Could you tell us some other achievements in sustainability that App Harvest has attained? Um, you know, a lot of people will tell you a sustainability story, and it's usually one end of the spectrum or the other. It's either on the environmental side or it's on the social impact side. And so App Harvest has worked hard uh, to really have um, a sustainability foundation that crosses through all of that. So we run on 100% rainwater and we collect that on the roof and then each of our farms has a retention pond. That rainwater goes into the retention pond. We put it through uh, sand filtration and UV filtering. Uh, and then that's what goes into our closed loop irrigation system. And that's how we deliver nutrients uh, and water to the plants. That's awesome. So you don't have any municipal water coming in? We use some municipal water for some of the facilities, such as the, the bathrooms, uh, et cetera, uh, but the plants get rainwater. Yeah, that's really incredible. Water conservation is increasingly important in agriculture in general. You know, United Nations studies suggest that we need to grow 50 to 70 percent more food by 2050. So we've got to learn to grow far more using far less. Our system uh, helps to enable that through water conservation by using a fraction of the nutrients uh, that are required compared to fertilizer in open field agriculture. And that fertilizer, of course, potentially can make its way into other freshwater aquifers and streams and pollute some of that water so that it, it cannot be used. And the other advantage from a sustainability perspective with controlled environment agriculture is you generally can get about 30 times the productivity on the same amount of land compared to open field agriculture. And then you're running that year round. 
So that means that you can grow a significantly larger amount of food on a smaller footprint, which reserves all of that extra land for other purposes. That's really cool. We haven't talked much yet about our integrated pest management specialists, which is uh, our team that includes human scouts who go out and use good bugs to fight bad bugs and work to find problems uh, while they're still small before they get to be an issue so that we don't, we, we can reduce any use of harsh chemical pesticides that you normally would see in agriculture. Um, are there some new technologies that are coming up or that you hope to implement to kind of increase this automation? We try not to reinvent the wheel where we don't need to. So we have relied a lot on technology transfer from the Netherlands because the Netherlands has been working on this technology basically since World War II. They had their supply lines cut and a significant percentage of their population starved and they made it a national priority to say we are never going to allow this to happen we're going to be able to feed our own people so the netherlands which is a country that roughly is the same geographic size as just eastern kentucky is one of the world's top food exporters based on their high-tech greenhouse technology so we have leveraged a lot of that we have done it at a u.s sized scale uh, and introduced the latest technology that's available. Uh, but a lot of that is based on Dutch technology that already has been developed. It sounds like, you know, starting in 2017 and coming to now, you've increased your production, you've built more greenhouses. Everything is going really well. Are there any kinds of challenges you're facing? Are there specific problems? What we've learned is that it takes about 24, depending on the type of farm, it takes about 24 to 36 months to really ramp these farms up to full production. And so we're hoping to take a lot of those lessons learned to accelerate uh, the trajectory to operational excellence at the other farms. But it just takes uh, a few uh, seasons of uh, going through the crops to learn what the ins and outs are and what they respond to uh, because each farm can be a little bit different. And so uh, that's part of the learning process for each of our master growers and our crop care specialists. What about any challenges in getting people to adopt this type of farming? Was there any pushback from you know open field agriculture? We occasionally have folks who think that this is something that is competitive to open field agriculture. And the reality is we already have shipped all of these jobs out of the country because we rely on two thirds of our fresh fruits and vegetables being imported. So these represent incremental jobs that we can create as we work to establish domestic food security. Uh, and in the case of a farm like Moorhead, we tend to go offline to do our summer refresh as open field agriculture comes online. Um, we're trying to take a dent out of all of the imports that are coming into the United States to build a reliable, resilient domestic food supply. And was there any kind of a pushback from grocery stores or anything to take these vegetables in? No, we have seen the opposite. 
we have seen that grocery stores and restaurants and food service retailers uh, really like the consistency of the quality and the quantity of controlled environment agriculture, and they like that it's U.S. grown, that it shortens their food miles, and they like the lowered perishability factor. Can you explain what you mean by perishability factor? In many cases, open field experiences a 30 to 40 percent perishability rate um, from the time it's picked from field getting to the grocery store shelf. The estimates for controlled environment agriculture are around the 10% range, and we think that over time, we may be able to get that into the single digits on uh, the perishability factor. So when you're able to extend that shelf life uh, by reducing the food miles and the transit time, uh, then that translates into more profitability for them as well and more sustainability. sounds like controlled environment agriculture hits a lot of the different issues in terms of improving circular economy and reducing waste in so many aspects of the whole process. Yeah, I mean, clearly with with us needing to produce 50 to 70 percent more food within a few decades, we're going to need every type of farming uh, and we need each of those types of farming to be as successful and efficient as possible. And so this is really just one more arrow that we can put in the quiver. So where do you see this industry growing? It seems like there should be a lot of growth. Yeah, it tends to be capital intensive. And so I would expect to see a uh, trajectory uh, that continues to increase in the number of acres under glass that we see. Uh, again, when you compare it to other areas of the world, Europe being probably the most advanced when it comes to CEA uh, with more than 500,000 acres under glass, uh, I, I would expect us to see the U.S. continue to increase that as well. We like to think of this as what needs to be the third wave of sustainable infrastructure. If you consider renewable energy to be the first, the popularization of electric vehicles to be the second, um, really to ensure domestic food security uh, and that we are being much more efficient with our resources to grow food uh, and with water conservation, controlled environment agriculture, we'd like to see be the third wave of sustainable infrastructure. Um, speaking of sustainable infrastructure and sustainable agriculture, are there additional things you're doing from a circular economy standpoint? Yeah, we're huge on recycling. So we recycle absolutely as much as possible. And then we're able to either sell all of these, the product, um, so that it's going for human consumption or the, the parts that uh, occasionally are not available for human consumption, we're able to divert for animal feed. So, um, and then on our construction projects, we um, also have been working to divert as much construction debris as possible so that it has second life uh, uses. Uh, so diverting as much from landfill as possible and finding better uses for it. 
I think that's important to note that just because humans can't eat it doesn't mean it needs to go to landfill. It can go to animals. It can be used as compost. So that's great that you're also working on that front. Um, I know you mentioned a few, but are there um, other social impacts or implications? So in our case, App Harvest is working to create jobs in some of the most economically distressed areas of the region that really need it. We also are a second chance employer. Um, We are um, a certified living wage company. We're organized as a public benefit corporation and we're certified as a B Corp. So part of our mission uh, is to look out for the interests of all of our stakeholders. So that's part of the social impact that we're we're working to make as well. So can you tell us some achievements that App Harvest has um, gotten? What we've seen is since we have come into some of these communities, wages get more competitive, which is really good for the general economy in the area. That's awesome. Yeah, another thing that I'd really like to highlight what we'd like to see here in this region, there there be an ag tech hub, an ecosystem that really supports more U.S. agriculture in general. We realize that we need to grow the next generation of farmers. And for a lot of folks, uh, for a lot of high school kids, they're just not that interested in agriculture. So we've established an ag tech outreach program Uh, to to create what we like to call the next generation of farmers and futurists. So we're in about 12 area high schools that have agriculture teachers in them and have worked with FFA uh, to put programs in place where we take retrofitted shipping containers and turn them into high-tech farm classrooms so that students can learn how to grow hydroponically. And they really learn the agriculture business from beginning to end, all the way from germinating the seeds to uh, growing the plants, harvesting the plants, and then the business behind deciding how they want to market, distribute, and sell them. That's really cool and a really good way to get you know, more people interested. And these small um, shipping containers that are retrofitted can put off the equivalent of about three to five open acres. I mean, so they are, you know, making some significant production with these. And so in many cases, uh, they're selling them to their school cafeterias. In some cases, they're selling them to uh, local health food stores. In some cases, they're donating them to area families in need. Um, But it shows them that they can have a career in agriculture that they didn't necessarily consider before um, because they just hadn't been introduced to what modern farming can look like. I think that's awesome. I definitely did not know anything about agriculture growing up, um, even though my family has farms. (laughs) It just wasn't something that ever really came across my plate. So it's really cool to see a more scientific approach because that's definitely something I'm interested in. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand. They think of agriculture of being, you know, rows and hoes. And it's like, no, there are lots of different (laughs) types of jobs that you can have in agriculture now. So, I mean, essentially, you can run one of our large farms 
off of an iPad or an iPhone because so many of the controls are automated. So introducing students to that concept, they learn, hey, I'm most interested in the germination phase. I'm most interested in the controls to maintain the environment. I'm more interested in the culinary piece. I'm more interested in developing software that helps to better manage all of these inputs. So it really inter introduces them to a broad spectrum of how they can support a, a future of agriculture. Yeah, that's super cool. And it's something that I think is going to bring a lot more people into this industry. Um, so we're coming close to the end. Do you have a fun fact? I think I went through most of my fun facts. I, what always overwhelms me is the sheer number of uh, of plants that we have. So over our two tomato farms, we can grow about 1.5 million tomatoes at a time. The, uh, the, the plants get so tall that it really is jungle-like that uh, folks have said uh, you, you can't get a cell signal sometimes when you're in some of the rows. You have to get up above uh, the top of the tomato plants uh, to be able to get a signal um, because it, they're so dense. Do you have a favorite type of tomato? When I first got here, and I, I had not heard the term snacking tomato until I got here. And I'm like, who the hell snacks on tomatoes? <laughs> so we've got some snacking tomatoes that I think are referred to as sweet tails that are one of my favorite kinds. But I had some Campari just yesterday that I put on a sandwich that were really good and flavorful. See, I like those. The beefsteaks, it's it's interesting because when, when you really get into it, like our beefsteaks, they're made to be slicing tomatoes to put on sandwiches. So when you do that, the guts don't fall out. On the other hand, when you do something that's like a Campari, it's made for like uh, sauces to cook down and like, you know, make sauces uh, or to make salsa out of. And so the guts do fall out because that's what you want. Each tomato has its place and purpose. And that's one of those things that I, I know more about tomatoes now uh, than I ever thought I would. And and <laughs> it's just scratching the surface compared to the real the real experts. I have had some app harvest salsa and it's quite good. Oh, good. Yeah, it got really good yeah. reviews. Uh, and, you know, we used all U.S. ingredients and mainly Appalachian ingredients in that, including Appalachian salt. There was an ancient sea under where the Appalachian Mountains are now. And so there is a family that has a salt mine that has been in operation for generations. And so the salt in our uh, salsa came from that Appalachian salt mine. That's incredible. That is a very fun fact as well. <laughs> And then one thing that we like to end our interviews with is to ask, uh, what is one personal sustainable practice that you do yourself that you want others to follow? This one is for me to really have the change in agriculture and food that we need. It requires a consumer movement. And so what I encourage folks to do is to, to just know where their food is coming from and to ask themselves, do they know the impact that it had on people and planet? Do I know where the blueberries on my plate came from uh, or the lettuce came from? Do I know if those folks paid a living wage? Do I know if they used harsh chemical pesticides? Uh, and to know that there are alternatives out there. 
um, but you have to be aware and ask yourself the question first. Yeah, for sure. I think that's so important. And I think I will personally start trying to look more into that when I go to the grocery store and look at the labels and see what's happening with that. That's everything that we had. And we really appreciate your time. We learned a lot. So oh, really good. appreciate it. Thanks for reaching yes. out. Thank you so okay. much. Yeah. Talk to you. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Cool. Bye-bye. This episode was edited and produced by Manali Banerjee and Nasreen Khan. Music is by Shang Young. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TGTM Podcast, or you can email us at talkgreentomepodcast at gmail.com.